can start making our way to our seats, please. It's great to see everybody this morning. Everyone should be feeling chipper with an extra hour of sleep. Grady, I don't think they'll fall asleep today, so I got a little extra. Everybody feeling good on this beautiful fall morning? Well, it's great to see everyone. Welcome to Gateway Baptist Church. Just make welcome those in the gym and for those joining us online. We're so happy you're able to be with us this morning to worship the Lord and to gather together as the family of God. And just a couple announcements before we get going this morning. Just a reminder that the uh, Operation Christmas Child Shoe Boxes are due in a couple weeks. November 15th is the deadline. Uh, the boxes will be um, brought in and put in the little stack you see out there in the hall. It's not too late to do one. I think there's a couple in the back. Ginny's holding up. Yes, thank you. So it's not too late to start and get one. You got a couple weeks. So we encourage you to do that. And uh, again, bring them in by November 15th. Also want to announce a new Sunday school Bible study that's going to be on campus. Uh, William Fox and Ron Burke's group are going through a study of personal holiness and the pursuit of God. And they're meeting in room three in the gym with the other two classes in rooms one and two. Details on that group and all the other Sunday morning Bible studies are on our website blog. And uh, they start at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. So we encourage you to come join in, be a part of that time of discipleship and building community together. We have an update from Seth Rodebeck on the Hope's ministry, and then we'll have a time of prayer and reading. Hey, good morning, y'all. We just wanted to give you an update and say thank you for your faithfulness in the Hope's ministry. Um, as many of you know, we've been doing a food delivery program over the past 32 weeks, and over that time frame, we have delivered 11,682 meals to 15 different families. And so we just wanted to say thank y'all your, for your faithfulness. And, and just to give glory to God to that, that was something we stepped into without knowing what we were doing, and the Lord just entirely blessed that, and, and thank you for that. We're transitioning now to a backpack program, so we're still going to be feeding and helping families that are in need and that type of thing, so just want to encourage you all to stay engaged in that. And one of the things we want to do is kind of a, um, of a last meal delivery to our families. We're going to do a Thanksgiving meal. So we're gonna, we've got 15 families, so if anyone, we're, we're asking if anybody would be willing to donate a 10 to 12 pound ham, please let me or Rochelle Watley know, and we're just going to try and do one last food delivery to them, um, just to bless them at Thanksgiving time. So if anybody would like to deliver a ham, just let us know, and we'll get that taken care of. We're going to try and deliver those by November 24th, so let me know in the next week or two, and we just really appreciate y'all. Thank you for your support. Thank you, Seth, for you and Megan's leadership in that. We're excited what God's doing at Capitol Heights. One final announcement. Uh, since there's no prayer tonight here in the Sanctuary at 4, it's every other week, we want to encourage you to come and join us at Fraser uh, for the big Awaken event uh, that happens once a year. We had to move it from the Biscuit Stadium that was outdoors into uh, Frazier this year, and it's just going to be an hour of prayer and worship for our city, for the River Region, pastors and churches all coming together as the one body of Christ here in Montgomery. So we encourage you uh, again from six to seven uh, at Frazier tonight. We encourage you to come be a part of that with the city church as the body of Christ coming together. I ask you to all please stand as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through song. I'm going to open us up with Psalm 118, one through eight. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Let's worship the Lord together.
Just see. 
amazing to think the God of the universe delights in what's happening here on Bell Road. That you are enjoying our worship. It's like a sweet fragrance and incense to you because you are worthy. And God, in the times that we live in, thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. You're faithful. You're good. You're just. You're righteous. You're sovereign. That we can look to you as the one who is in control of all things. And that's why we can come each week confidently, God, and bring these requests before you to ask for you to intervene in these situations and among these peoples and situations, Lord. God, we thank you for what you're doing here at Gateway. We thank you that this is your church. You are the chief shepherd, Jesus. And we are here to honor you and to follow you. And we thank you for the under shepherds that are in a process right now that you have chosen to help lead this body as elders. We ask you to continue to speak to these men who have been nominated to guide and direct them as, uh, Lord, to make it clear whether or not they are to serve in this capacity that they've been called to this function in your church. So we ask you to continue to speak and reveal and guide and direct the steps of this process. 
God, we thank you that we can lift up other churches in this community, our other brothers and sisters of the one church of Montgomery. And we lift up the Mistec Church over in Highland Gardens, Lord, that this people group that you brought here many years ago um, from the uh, mountains of Mexico, that they made their way here. And Pastor John and Lisa Rose, who's been a part of us for years, as they're ministering and serving this body of local Christians in this people group who don't even have a written language. It's, it's all audible, Lord. And we just pray you continue to move among them. Give John wisdom and Lisa as they continue to maneuver through these times of COVID, trying to reach this people group, Father. And we thank you we can be a part of that. And Lord, we thank you for new life in Christ. We thank you, as I saw Kike's here and uh, one of the leaders and uh, just fellowshipping with us this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this Hispanic community that meets here in our building after us. They're our family. We thank you for Eduardo and the rest of the leadership as a minister in the city to the Hispanic community. We pray you continue, God, to give them wisdom and direction and guidance um, as they reach out in this city, God, to reach uh, their communities that they live in. We're so grateful for them, Lord. And God, again, the reminder of what's coming up this week for our nation, Lord, as we contemplate and pray and seek your face for the election that's coming on Tuesday, God, I thank you for your word that is so true that we can go to truth. And Lord, it just was a reminder this week of Romans 13, 1, where it says every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And Lord, we thank you for this foundational truth that no matter what happens Tuesday, regardless of the outcome, God, that you are on your throne and you establish the governing authorities. You establish all that goes on in government. And we trust you. We look to you. We do our part out of obedience from a biblical perspective. And God, I pray for each one that's in this room, as we have to look through kingdom lenses, we look at life in a different way than others. We serve a higher law, a higher purpose as citizens of the kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for 1 Peter 2, where it says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Here's what we've been called to, saints. We act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. God, I pray for each of us in this room that we can be salt and light this week, that we are your representatives, your ambassadors of your heavenly kingdom and your heavenly government. And we just entrust it to you, Lord, and we say over this election and over what happens in our country, may your kingdom come and your will be done of what you desire to do. And Lord, we thank you that we can also look beyond our nation to the unreached peoples of the world. And this morning, God, we lift up the Oroshi people of the Ukraine. Uh, they practice a dark shamanism, and they're led by tribal leaders of holy men, and they actually seek out the wisdom from demons and ancestral spirits for healing and guidance. God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would flood that area in northern Ukraine with Christians and missionaries of, of native Ukrainians that would reach them with the gospel. This people group is very small. They're almost extinct. But God, you know who they are, you know where they live, you know their hearts, and we pray, God, that you would bring your gospel to these peoples. They do not have a written language as well in their native dialect, so God, we pray that you would send people there to reach them in their heart language to try to share the gospel and bring them to faith. God, we thank you again for your goodness, for your provision during this offering. We pray, God, that you bless it for your kingdom work that you're doing in and through this fellowship. We thank you that you have blessed us so much, and it's just a small portion you ask back. 
So continue, God, to use the resources we have for your glory. And lastly, Lord, we thank you for our shepherd. We thank you for Grady, for his heart to teach, to share, to love us, protect us, guide us. We pray, God, you fill him afresh right now with your spirit. Give him strength and energy as he comes this morning. And we pray that his ears are so in tune with you, Holy Spirit, as you bring the word this morning through him. And again, God, we praise you as we sung all morning. We love you. You are so good. You're so faithful. And we bring you all honor and glory this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Gateway family. Great to see you on this fall morning. Greetings to those in the gym and those worshiping from home. I'm so grateful we get to gather together as awards people. See what we've done this morning to proclaim his excellencies, to praise him, to pray together. What joy there is in the people of God being together. I'm so thankful you're part of that with us today. I want you to find James chapter 5. We are entering a new chapter in James. We are now in the last chapter of the book of James. We're in our 35th sermon from James. We are on track to finish two weeks before Christmas, if all goes as schedule on this. But find James chapter 5 this morning as we continue our journey through it. As you're finding James 5, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been tempted by money and riches? Have you ever been tempted by money and riches? Have you ever been tempted to envy those who have more than you? It could be when you see the house on TV of that super wealthy person, or even a place you get to visit. It could be that luxury car that speeds past you going down Vaughn Road. It could be the news report of the extravagant lifestyle of some wealthy, famous person in our country. It could be the ads that pop up on social media, that place in the world we wish we could go, but we don't have the funds to go. Or it could just be with hanging out with someone who has a little bit more. There's so many opportunities for us to be tempted to want more and more and more of the things of the world. There's so many opportunities around us each day to envy those who have more. Now, friends, this is not a new temptation. This is a temptation that's been around a long, long time because of human nature. Think back, if you were with us at Gateway, when we studied the Psalms a year ago, and we walked through the Psalms for about six months there, we came to Psalm number 73, one of my favorites. And this is not one by King David. That was a psalm by Asaph, who was one of the worship leaders at the time of King David. You remember, Asaph struggled with envying those who were wealthy as well. We should see it up on the screen, but Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. Asaph says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's saying, I, I was tempted. I was sinning. And why? In verse 3, he goes on and tells us why. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here, Asaph, in the time of King David, was struggling with looking at those who have more than him and being envious of them, of being envious of those who have more earthly riches. In fact, his envy was so strong. Verse 12 and 13, you see him really rest with this. In verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease. They increase in riches. Then in verse 13, he laments, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The struggle is real, friends. And it goes back to the time of even before King David. And James knows the struggle is real, so he addresses that. And even before the text we come to this morning, he's already warned us about the temptation to long for riches, the temptation to envy those who have more. If you remember back to James chapter 1, verse 11, I know that was a long time ago, but he was warning us about how temporal earthly wealth is. He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. As flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So he's warned us about building our lives around trying to get more and more wealth. 
He's reminded the early Christians well what the wealthy class tend to do to Christians. James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as he brings this theme up again, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Now the context again, remember, was the church was showing favoritism to the rich and ignoring the poor in their midst. He says, You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And so he's already warned the church about the danger of coveting more and more and more earthly riches. He's already warned the church about the dangers of envying those who have more. And texts like that and the texts that we're going to come to this morning, friends, are harder texts, but they're grace gifts from God because they're given to us to help guard our hearts, our hearts that are so quick to want to run after what the world offers. These type texts are grace gifts to turn our hearts back to the Lord. So James comes back to this topic for the third time this morning, but with a different emphasis and with more depth. And what we come to this morning in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, are really the harshest words of his entire letter. What we come to this morning is a scathing text of really hard words that he shares to alert us to the danger of covetousness and the danger of envy. So as we read this text this morning, yes, we're going to try to tackle six verses this morning. I know that's more than normal, so hang on with us this morning, but it's all one thought and one idea, so there's no way to really separate these out. So look at six verses this morning. I want you to be looking for us to read, what do we need to be thinking about? What do we need to remember to guard our heart from covetousness? What do we need to remember to guard our heart from envying those who have more? So James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, can I ask you if you're able to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and we'll also have the words on the screen for you as well. James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and God, we thank you for the whole counsel of your word, the texts that we run to because they encourage us and make us feel good, and we thank you as well for harder texts like this that are really pointed and strong and harsh in a lot of ways. Lord, they're all your words to us. They're all inspired. They're all infallible. They're all inerrant. Lord, they are all your grace gift to us. So what I pray today is we come to one of these harder texts. It's not one we typically would run to, God, that you would open our eyes to the truth of it. God, you show each one of us what you want us to learn from this text. And God, you would use your word this morning to sanctify us, your people, to make us more and more like Christ so we can find the joy of walking with you in the way that you've called us to walk. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, how's that for a happy reading of a text this morning, right? (laughs) How's that for an easy text? Friends, this is a truth we need to hear that is not one we're drawn to. Friends, this is why you've heard me so far, why we primarily here preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because no pastor gets up going, I wonder what I want to preach this Sunday. I want to do James 5, 1 to 6. Friends, these are hard words. These are not probably words we find in most of our devotional reading and most devotionals. But these are truth from God that are inspired by God for us, his church, that we need to hear. So here's what I want you to see from James chapter 5, 1 to 6 this morning. It's simply this. God turns our minds to eternity to guard us from envying those who live for worldly riches. God turns our minds to eternity to guard us from envying those who live for worldly riches. 
Friends, we face a real temptation, like Asaph did, like people in James' churches did as well. We have a real temptation to want to live like the world. We are before us all day. We're bombarded with the message that you deserve more, you need more. And before us, day by day by day, is this temptation to have more riches, to need the newest technology, need to have the padded bank accounts, to need the new car, to want the best clothes, to have the right house in the right neighborhood. We are constantly put before us these temptations to envy those who have more and to want to live like the world. And as we are tempted by that, as we are inundated with that, friends, very subtly our lives begin to get ordered according to the world and not according to God's word. And so God in his grace gift to us gives us texts like this to wake us up to the envy in our hearts, to wake us up to how we can so easily live for the temporal instead of the eternal. And God guards us from that type of envy as he turns our minds to eternity. Now I want to unpack that this morning from these six verses. Now first of all, to understand what James is doing here, we have to first of all understand who the audience is, who he's addressing. Now it's not as quite straightforward as you would think. The scholars actually argue and debate over who James is talking about here. Go back to verse 1. Come now, you rich. Now let's just stop right there. The question that's debated is, are the rich here rich Christians in the church, or are they rich non-Christians in the culture? Now there's different people have different views. I'm convinced that this is not the rich Christians in the church. So James's audience primarily has been the church. We would expect that to be the case. Here, I believe he deviates from that in the sense of who the rich are here because this is the one text where there's no call to repent. If you think about what was just laid out before us in these six verses, there is no call to repent. Rather, you see the certainty of judgment coming on this particular group of people. And what we'll get to next Sunday in verse 7, he now turns the focus back to the brothers. And he encourages the brothers to be patient when they are oppressed by the people he's referencing here in verses 1 through 6. And so the majority view of most of the scholars is that the rich here, James is speaking to rich non-believers outside the church. Now, this would be consistent with James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which I read a little bit earlier, where he says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are not the rich the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And so I believe James is using the term rich here, like he did in chapter 2, to mean a general group in society. Now, there are exceptions to this, but if you think at the time when James wrote this, there was huge class distinctions. And the rich were a group of society, a group in society, I should say, at the top of society, who were the wealthy non-Christians who would use their power and use their wealth to advance themselves, and they would oppress anyone else to gain more for themselves. As a whole, again, there were exceptions, but as a whole, the rich in the time of James's world here would be non-Christians, would be people who did not love the Lord. Now that raises an interesting question for us. If the rich here are non-Christians, why is James addressing them? Because I mean, the richer, are they going to really read James's letter? If you're a wealthy person who hates God and hates God's people who's going to oppress anyone to get more for yourself, you're not going to be like, hey, I heard the churches in these cities got a letter. I want to go read it. So why in the world is James addressing them here? Well, it's interesting what I believe James is doing here. He's speaking to the rich here, but the rich are not his audience. The audience are still the church. The audience is still the believers, but what James is doing to drive home a point to the church is he speaks to the rich, though he knows they're not listening, so the church can hear, so the church can learn the lessons that he wants the church to learn. I mean, you may have heard people in debates, or even unfortunately politicians do this, to where they reference and they speak to the other politician, knowing the other politician is not listening, but to make a point to their audience. It's a rhetorical device, and that's what James is employing here. He's speaking to the rich but his audience is still the church, then in the church now. This is a message for us as 
believers, and he's teaching us something by addressing the rich outside of the church. Now, to understand what James is trying to teach us here, he speaks to the rich, and he shows them that they have a sinful view of wealth. They have a sinful view of wealth. Now, we need to be clear here. James does not say that being rich is a sin. It's not. James does not say that having resources is a sin. It is not. In fact, in the scriptures in both Old Testament and New Testament, you find examples of wealthy people blessed by God who use their wealth for God's purposes. So this is not an issue of money and riches. This is an issue of a sin issue of how we view money and riches. And so James is not condemning wealth. James is condemning a sinful approach to wealth. And here in this text, there's three different things he condemns, three different sinful attitudes towards wealth that he condemns here. Number one, he condemns the sin of acquiring wealth sinfully. He condemns the sin of acquiring wealth in sinful ways. Look at verse number four here. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's saying that there's a sinful way of acquiring wealth, that here, many in this rich class that he's addressing here gain their wealth by taking advantage of others. Now again, remember at the time here, you had wealthy landowners and they needed workers, and so they would hire day laborers. These were like non-contractual type jobs. They would go into the town, you see Jesus referenced this even in the parables, they would go into town and people would just stand around in a certain square area of the town waiting for work. If no one came, they didn't have any work for the day. And these wealthy people would go and say, I need day laborers. You come, you come, you come, and I'll pay you this much. They didn't get paid up front. They were supposed to get paid at the end of the day after they did their work. There was no promise of work the next day. But unfortunately, at the time, many of these wealthy landowners we know from history would either fail to pay the workers at the end of the day, or they paid them less than they had promised to pay, and there was no recourse because the wealthy controlled the courts at the time. There was nothing these day laborers could do to get their wages. And friends, to be not paid that day was huge for them because they didn't have food. A day without wages was a day without food for them and their family, and the wealthy just simply didn't care. They would oppress these poor people, knowing they wouldn't have food, and they were careless about it because they just wanted more for themselves. That's what James drives home, the sinful acquisition of wealth in verse number 6 here. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, the righteous person here is a Christ follower who was poor, who was waiting in the city to find work, was one of those day laborers who had been defrauded. And James says to the rich here, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Murdered? Well, perhaps. We know there's been persecution against Christians, but I don't think that's what James is driving at here. You have to realize in the Jewish culture, to deprive someone of the ability to support themselves and their family was seen as bad as murder. So to deprive someone of their ability to support themselves and their family was seen as bad as murder in the Jewish culture because it showed absolute hatred and disregard for a person. So James is condemning these rich people outside the church for not caring if even the poor Christians have food. And he says, in addition to murdering, hating them, you have condemned them. So many of these people could not pay their debts because they were underpaid and defrauded. They ended up in debtor's prison. They were condemned by the courts and cast away into prison. So what you have here, James is painting, is a picture of acquiring wealth with complete disregard for the people around you, the people who work for you. Now this Seems extreme, because it's a different culture that we're in, but friends, does the same thing still happen today? Yeah. Is there the ability for people to make wealth with complete disregard for the people under their care? Absolutely. And can Christians even be tempted in places of authority to not adequately pay people under their care, to not pay people who provide services for them? Friends, I've been stunned as we have been 
you know, renegotiating contracts with service providers, even around the church here. The story some of these guys have told me of being defrauded by churches here in Montgomery, of providing services and not being paid for them, and churches trying to wiggle out of providing what they've agreed to pay for. It's just heartbreaking. Christians can still take advantage of people under them for the sake of self-advancement. And James says, doing so was a sin. Anything you do to keep more wealth for yourself and deprive it of a person that's due is sinful. But James points out another sin related to wealth as well. Not just that you can acquire wealth in sinful ways, but number two, you can use wealth in sinful ways. You can use wealth selfishly. Look at verse number five. He says in verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It says you've lived in luxury. This phrase only appears here in the New Testament. We don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. But the phrase means extravagant comfort, soft luxury. Extravagant comfort and soft luxury. saying you've taken all these things, you've hurt other people to get more and more for yourself. And what have you done with it? You have lived in extravagant comfort and soft luxury. You have lived in ease. If that's not enough, he says you've done so in self-indulgence. That means without any type of restraint. You have no restraint. You just do whatever you want to do for self with no regard to anything else around you. And so not only have these people James is speaking about for the good of the church, have they gained their wealth in sinful ways, they're using their wealth in sinful ways in selfishness and in self-indulgence. Now this is the same picture that Jesus painted for us way back in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, I want you to see this up on the screen here. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'm going to give it all away and help other people. Nope. He says, I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grains and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose Will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Since James is giving us the same picture here that Jesus painted in the parable in Luke chapter 12, a person who just wants more and more and more for themselves. He wants more and more luxury, more and more ease. And again, friends, that was not just a problem in 45 AD when James wrote this letter. It's a problem today. It's a temptation for me and it's a temptation for you to take what God gives to us and want to amass more and more of it so we get more comfort, more soft luxury, more ease. And I say often so that ultimately we can try to get from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. And as we do so, we completely forget about the needs across this town. More or less, we forget about the needs all across the world as well. And one reason why that sin is so bad leads us to our third thing that we need to see this morning, of a simple view of wealth, is we're wasting what should have helped others. We're wasting that which should have helped others. So there's a simple way of acquiring wealth. There's a simple way of using wealth in a selfish way. And ultimately it boils down to this. We waste what should have been given to help others. Look at verses 2 and 3. James says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He's painting a picture here for us, friends, of people who have accumulated so much stuff, more and more and more, had such luxury and such ease. They had more than they knew what to do with, and it was literally wasting away. They had so many clothes packed in their closets, the moths were eating them. They had so many precious metals they couldn't even use. They were tarnishing, they were rusting in this. They had such things in excess that could have been used to clothe people in need, 
They could have been used to provide food for the hungry. They could have been used to provide financial resources to serve others. So much that could have been used to support the work of the church and God's purpose. Instead, they just hoarded and amassed and amassed and amassed and let things go to waste instead of being willing to part with them to help others. In the end, they wasted resources, and it did no good for them and no good for others. Now, James, in giving us these three sinful views of wealth and acquiring wealth sinfully and using it selfishly and, and hoarding it instead of giving it to others, he nails down the root cause of all these sins. And look at verse, the end of verse 3 here. He kind of paints for us the picture of why we're so tempted in all these things. He says at the end of verse 3 here, You have laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Perhaps a paraphrase could be, you've been living for the wrong thing. You've been living for the temporal instead of the eternal. You've been laying up treasures for yourself now instead of treasures for eternity in heaven. You've been living not for God but for yourself since you're doing so in the last days. Let me just remind you, the last days is that period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. It's the whole period of time that we're in right now. When James wrote this in 45 AD, those were the last days. We're in 2020. We're still in the last days. The last days is this whole period of time in Scripture between the first and second coming of Christ. And in the last days, God's followers are to live not for self, but for Him. In the last days, this time period, we're to live under the Lordship of Christ, submitting ourselves to Him. Not just trusting Him to be our Savior so we get out of hell, but trusting Him as our Lord so we order our lives according to His purposes. In other words, during the last days, we are to be stewards of all that God has given to us. We're to realize that all the stuff we have doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to God who owns everything. And he's entrusted it to us in these last days to use not however we want to do, but according to his purposes. He gives us the homes we have, the finances we have, the cars we have, the clothes we have, the technology we have, all the resources and opportunities we have, even our breath of life this day, not so we can have more and more ease, not so we can have more and more abundance, but he gives it to us to steward for his purposes. And friends, what this text is reminding us here, you have laid up treasure in the last day. It's reminding us that when we fail to live for God's purpose, when we fail to use what God has given us for his purposes, it is not trivial, it is sin. And he brings out the seriousness of the sin by reminding us here that these rich people outside the church are going to be judged severely by God for their sinful view of wealth. Don't miss this. He shows in, in very strong imagery here how these rich people who are outside of the church, who are non-Christians, will be judged severely for their misuse of wealth. Go back to verse 1, friends. Again, these are harsh words in this, in this text here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It says weep and howl. Some of your translations say weep and wail. Anytime you see these words in Scripture, these are words always used in the context of judgment. When sinners are standing before a holy God without a mediator between them and God, and they receive the wrath of God justly deserved for their sins. And that wrath being poured on them is described in that verse as the miseries that are coming to you, the distress, the pain, when all eternity they pay for these sins against a holy God that they did not repent of because they had no mediator to cover their sins. And there's no escaping this judgment for those outside Christ. Verse 4 he says, notice his last phrase here at the end of verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears, and notice the name of God here, of the Lord of hosts. We see this, this name of God, the Lord of hosts. It's an image of God leading an army. 
Some people call this the image of the divine warrior, that God, the supreme one, is a divine warrior fighting to accomplish his, purchase, his, his purposes. And here he is fighting to protect his people, and he is fighting to judge those who have oppressed his people and had the sinful view of wealth. And the image here is of the divine warrior, the Lord of hosts. No one can stop him. There is no escaping his judgment. And so what James is trying to show us is this simple use of wealth is not trivial. That God will bring the host of heaven. He will bring his judgment upon those who choose to live for themselves instead of living for him. And again, that's not new for us. Remember Psalm 73, I referenced that at the beginning when Asaph talks about his envy. Remember when, when Asaph came to this realization, Psalm 73, verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, the prosperity of the wicked, his struggle with envy of why he had so little and the world has so much. When I thought to understand, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He was overwhelmed with envy. But then look, verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. He goes in and he encounters God as he's worshiping God, as he's studying God's word. He encounters God. And what happens? God turns his mind from the temporal to the eternal. And notice what he reminds him of is the very thing that James reminds us of. And it says, I discern their end. He understands their judgment is coming for those he envied. Verse 18, truly, God, you set them in slippery places. So God sets these, these wicked rich people in wicked places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Friends, that's not a pretty picture that's the same picture that James is painting for us of the Lord of hosts bringing judgment upon those who have defamed his name and who have used their wealth in sinful ways and not stewarded what he had told them to do. Asaph comes to this conclusion in verse 27, a few verses later. He says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Notice a certainty of here. When the Lord of hosts declares it, it's done. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's the very thing that James is trying to help us see here. The cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So whether it's in the time of Asaph or the time of the early church, today as well in 2020, those who reject God and live for themselves, they will be judged. came across a quote this week, and it's really arrested my attention. In describing this group of people that Asaph and James both talk about, this guy said this, they will arrive at the judgment day content but condemned. They will arrive at the judgment day content but condemned. I think that describes so many in our culture today. People have amassed wealth and ease and comfort and built their lives all to serve self. And the day will come where they will stand before a holy God, very content with their padded bank accounts and their wealthy houses and their big homes and their luxury cars and all the affluence and ease of life in this life. And they will arrive at the judgment day content but condemned. So why does James remind us of their sin? Why does James remind us of their certain judgment? Again, he's speaking to the rich, so to speak, knowing they're not reading his letter, but he's speaking to them for the good of the church and for the good of us today. Why is he doing that, friends? Because he's trying to turn our minds from the temporal to the eternal. He's trying to change our focus and help us with our tendency to envy them. And so, friends, when we change our minds from the temporal to the eternal, when God changes our perspective, it does two things. It changes how we view the people we are envying, and it changes how we view ourselves. So when we can turn our mind by God's grace from the temporal to the eternal, it changes how we view, how we think about those people we were envying because they had so much. It also changes how we view ourselves. Think about that. It changes how we view those we envy. Because can we really keep envying someone who is going to perish, who God's going to put an end to, who's going to have, in the words of James here, miseries that are coming upon you? Can we really envy someone who is on the path to hell? And friends, when we get this truth in our minds, 
the people we are envying, we stop envying and we start having our hearts broken for. In the language of Ephesians, we put off envying the person and we put on brokenness and prayer for them instead. When God changes our perspective from the temporal to the eternal, the person that we were most inclined to want to envy, and, oh, if only I could have a car like them and a house like them. Instead, our heart starts to break when we see their house and their car because we know what's coming for them for all eternity. And we, puts, and we put on concern for their soul as well. We put on kind of a perspective that Jesus warned us about. Matthew chapter 19, verse 22. This is when a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I want eternal life. Jesus says, great, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, why does Jesus say that to that rich young man? Not because that's the prerequisite for everyone to come to faith in Christ. It's not, but he knew the idol in that man's life. The idol in that man's life, what he loved more than God was he loved his stuff, this ease, this amassing of things that James is warning us about. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue for this man, that he loved his affluence more than God. So Jesus says, give it all away, then come follow me. In verse 22 of Matthew 19, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He didn't want to part with his idols. He had great possessions. Verse 23, and Jesus then turns and he teaches his disciples in this moment. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the disciples hear this, they're going, is there any hope? Who then can be saved? Is it possible then for a rich person to be saved? Jesus doesn't, his answer is not, nope, it's impossible. The wealthy would have no hope. That's not what he says. Verse 26. Jesus looked at him and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's just as much of a miracle for you and me to come to faith in Christ as it is for a billionaire to come to faith in Christ. None of us can come to faith in Christ. God has to open our eyes to his glory, to our own sin, to our need of him, and he draws us to himself. This is a reminder of all of our desperate need for grace. And so when you put that together with what James is saying here, instead of envying people who are wealthy and have such affluence and such ease, what God is calling us to do is to cry out to him to change their hearts. God's calling us to put off our envy and put on earnest prayers to him, crying out for God to do the impossible, to draw these rich people to Christ, to open their eyes to their need of God. And if in God's grace we're in relationship with him, he's calling us to stop envying and start talking about the gospel with them. And so when we think in terms of eternity instead of the temporal, we put off our envy, we put on concern for their souls. But the second thing it does, when we move from the temporal to the eternal, it changes how we view ourselves here. What it changes for us, it reminds us that we too will give an account. That we too will give an account. Friends, if we are in Christ, our sins are paid for. We do not have to fear, verse 1. We do not have to fear weeping and howling because of the miseries that have come upon us. If we are in Christ, those miseries have been put on Christ. We don't have to weep and howl because Christ has bared the penalty on our behalf. Every sin in our life, from the sins of envy and covetousness to every other sin, to our misuse of wealth, to selfishness, all those, if we are in Christ, we put on Christ. We don't have to fear the judgment because we're in Christ. All of our sins are forgiven. All of Christ's righteousness has been given to us. And though we rejoice in that and celebrate that, I think so often, friends, we forget that we still will give an account before a holy God one day. Not in terms of judgment of whether or not we make it into heaven, but in terms of an accounting of our life and an accounting that affects rewards. And so when we think about what James lays out here, it reminds us, yes, we can rejoice that we are free from this type of judgment and eternal damnation, but it does remind us we will still give an account before God of how we used our wealth. So friends, think about this. If the rich are going to give an account for acquiring their wealth selfishly, it reminds us that we're going to give an account before God as well. And have we used other people to advance ourselves? 
if we live to serve other people. So we'll give an account before a holy God one day of whether or not we have used our wealth in such a way to hurt other people, to advance self, or whether or not we bless people instead. But it reminds us, well, if the rich are going to give an account for using their wealth selfishly, it reminds us of God's standards. That our resources haven't been given to us so we have an easy life. Our resources have been given to us to steward well for God's purposes. And we'll give an account before a holy God one day when we see our Savior face to face of whether or not we have stewarded what he's entrusted to us. But friends, if the rich are going to give an account for hoarding their wealth while letting others stay in need, it reminds us that God calls us to be generous to those he placed in our life, to be generous and to care for others and to help for others. And when we see our Savior face to face, one day a day of judgment, a day of accounting, we will give an answer of whether or not we use the abundance God has given to us to help other people or whether we just amassed more and more for ourselves. Perhaps we want to summarize all this. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 gives us a great reminder of this. Everything that we've seen from Psalm 73 and James 5 as well, I believe this kind of boils it all down to an idea for us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You know, it's the imagery here, the same thing James pulls from. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break, up, break in and steal. But verse 20. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Again, back to the language of Ephesians. We're to put off living for this life now. We're to put on living for eternity. We're to put off only trying to amass more and more in this life so we have more ease now. And we're to put on, we're to place it with trying to amass things that affect all eternity. That raises the practical question for you. Last question for the morning, friends. How do we lay up treasures in heaven? Sounds real good, sounds real spiritual. I'm living to lay up treasures in heaven, but how do we do that? What does that practically look like? Well, can I suggest it's two things? Anytime we use what God has given us to advance the gospel or to serve other people, we're laying up treasures in heaven. When we use our homes and practice hospitality to do things that advance the gospel, disciple people, serve people in need, we're laying up treasures in heaven. Anytime we use our financial resources and give into things that will make the gospel go forth, things that help people need, we're laying up treasures in heaven. We, use, we lay up treasures in heaven when we use what God has given to us to advance the gospel and serve others instead of using it just for ourselves. One last text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. This is a great kind of challenge for us in this. As for the rich in this present age, and let me just pause there, friends. When you travel the world, if you've had the opportunity to travel and see other cultures, friends, even in Montgomery, if you don't feel like you have much, you have a lot compared to most of the rest of the world. Our standards, what we have here just, is, just blows away what so many in the world live. When I've traveled, whether it's Southeast Asia or East Asia, or been into Africa as well, the places I've seen and the poverty I've seen, it eclipses anything I've ever experienced here. And it makes even a low middle class income in America look lavish in the scope of eternity. So just when we see this text, we don't need to just think of the Jeff Bezos and the billionaires out there. The rich in this present age, is, if we're going to be honest, most of us here at Gateway today. To the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, there's just another way of saying all that you know, we've seen in James so far of not living for the temporal, but living for the eternal. But what do we set our hope on? So we set our hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, having things is not bad. God gives them to us to enjoy, but with something else in view. So verse 18. So what are we to do with all the stuff God's entrusted to us? We're to do good. We're to be rich in good works. We're to be, what's the next word? We're to be generous, and we're to be ready to do what? Talk about the antidote to what James is talking about here, right? 
God has given us things not just for our ease and comfort. Yes, we can enjoy all that God has given to us. It's not bad to enjoy the resources God has given to us, provided we are seeing them and viewing them through the lens of wanting to do good, wanting to do good works to others, and wanting to be generous and ready to share. And then in verse 19, when we do that, thus we're storing up treasure not just treasure on earth, but we're living for eternal treasure. We're storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, friends. So what we need God to do is to turn our minds to eternity, to remind us of the eternal fate of those who have rejected God and are living for themselves, and to turn our minds to eternity as well, and the accounting we will give before God and the need to live for eternity, to lay up treasures in heaven and not treasures on this earth. And when God turns our minds to eternity, friends, it guards us from envying those who live for worldly riches. Just when I ask you at the beginning, do we ever, are we ever tempted with riches and ever tempted to envy? We all chuckle because we all are. But the antidote to that, the, the hope for that, is God and His grace turning our minds from the temporal and putting our minds on the eternal. And as He does so, it changes and it frees us from envy and it allows us to put on generosity and kindness and living for his purposes. So I want to ask this morning, friends, when we think about all that God has given to us, do we tend to hoard our blessings? Do we take all the blessings God puts in our hands and do we kind of start clinging tightly to them? Or do we hold all the blessings God has given us to us and we hold them in an open hand going, God, show me how to use these for other people? Is our ambition in life to accumulate more and more and more? Or is our ambition in life to be a pastor where we take what God has given to us and we want to quickly spoon it back out to other people as well to help them? Do we ever try to advance ourselves at the expense of others, whether it's a business we're in partnership with, whether it's a person who we've been paid to do services, are we ever trying to gain more for ourselves at the expense of others? There's one author I read this week asked this pointed question. She simply said, is there any unbiblical excess in our life? Is there any unbiblical excess in our life? And the last thing, friends, are we trying to love God and love others with all he's given to us, or are we loving ourselves? God turns our minds to eternity to guard us from envying those who live for worldly riches. And my prayer for myself, because I need this like you do, my prayer for you this week is that God would give us an eternal focus, that God would turn our hearts from looking as if this life is all there is, and would turn our minds to eternity, and he would reorient us and change our parties so that all of our life is affected as we live with eternity in view. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for your word when it's encouraging. We're thankful for your word when it hurts, when it convicts, when it hits us at places that is really in a lot of ways in our culture would be considered a respectable sin. Lord, coveting and envying and wanting more. Find, God, we can find so many ways to justify that and to explain it away. But Lord, you call us to not live for this world. You call us to live with eternity in view. And Lord, we're bombarded every day from the commercials on TV that make us feel like we don't have enough, Lord, to just the world we live in, Father. The temptations are strong to want to live for this life and to miss eternity. And so, Lord, we need much grace. We need your Holy Spirit within us to be turning our hearts from this present life to eternity. God, we need your Holy Spirit within us to help us realize we're stewards and not just to hoard and cling to our stuff, but to want to release it, Lord, so that your kingdom goes forth and so that people are built up and so that needs are met. So, Lord, I just pray this week for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters. If in any of our lives where there's areas of unbiblical excess, there's areas to where our, we've been putting our hope in our stuff instead of in you. If there's areas to where you've given us stuff because you want us to release it, or so the gospel can go forth and so people's needs can be met and we've been clinging to it, God, would you show us this week? 
not to break us, not to, to cause us to feel excruciating pain, but God, would you do it this week in your love and your kindness and your grace for the stuff that we've been, that been stopping with us that you designed to pass through us to others. We can find the joy of releasing and seeing you work. So we thank you for doing that in our lives. We thank you that you love us so much, God. You don't leave us where we are, but you keep sanctifying us and growing us in all areas of our life, including how we view wealth, God, including how we live, whether for the here and now or for eternity. So God, would you take your word and would you let the truth of your word transform me and transform these brothers and sisters to make us more and more like Christ, Lord. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning? Surrender 
you are the judge of the secrets, God. You know our hearts, God. You know our ways, our deeds, Lord. Everything that we try to keep secret from others, Lord, is light to you, God. It is made known to you, Father. God, even in our hearts, our sinful ways, God, knowing those secrets, God, knowing our sin. Father, you bore that sin, God. Your son, Jesus, bore that sin on our behalf and took that wrath, Lord. So that those secrets, God, those sins, Father, they're forgiven. God, we are forgiven in you, God, through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we can know that that wrath has already been poured on your son. And that price, Lord, that sin has already been dealt with on the cross, God. You have already bore it. And so though we try to keep those things secret, Lord, there is freedom, Lord, and knowing that it's already been taken care of on the cross. If we are in you, God, if we are found in you, God, that those secrets, those sins, God, they have been born on your behalf, God, and we can find safety, refuge in you and your son, Jesus Christ, God. On that solid rock, Father, we can stand, Lord, our sure and steady foundation, God, and find hope in you, Father. We love you. Thank you for that price that you paid, God, for your son laying his life down on our behalf, God, and taking your full wrath, God. May we never take it for granted, God. As we even look today, God, Lord, we are blessed in this country, God, even when we feel like it's paycheck to paycheck, God, and that, God, we don't know how we're going to make ends meet, Father. Lord, when we look at us compared to the world, God, Lord, we are blessed beyond all measure, God. And God, you have gifted us, Lord, and you have blessed us with these things, God, not to hoard and keep to ourselves, God, but to turn around and help those in need, God. Father, help us this week, God, just to reflect on that, Father, and 
how you have blessed us, God, and how are we using those resources, God? Are we just being slothful, Father, and laying all those treasures up for ourselves, God, that we cannot take with us, God? Lord, you have blessed us to bless others and to serve others and to help others, God. Lord, show us ways this week where we can use those resources, God, that you have blessed us with to bless others, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.